Our reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, and uh, we're beginning the reading at verse 1, is where Jesus is uh, telling his disciples that he will be leaving them and sending the Holy Spirit, and we begin at verse 1. Jesus says, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes you'll remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can no longer see me. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Amen. We cannot fail to have been moved by the effects of the recent earthquakes in Nepal. Uh, To experience one would be more than enough for any country to endure. Ian and Pauline have been out in uh, Nepal, as you know, last year. And uh, whilst we have uh, had updates uh, through BMS, through Tear Fund, through various other organisations about what is going on in Nepal and our opportunities to support them, um, I thought it was important that Ian and Pauline perhaps have the opportunity this morning to share with us something more personal. Um, with the contacts that they've had on the ground with Christian leaders and individuals and groups uh, so that we can pray more effectively uh, and with greater understanding about what is happening uh, in that environment. So Ian, come and share with us this morning. Sorry about the sound. Um, We've been in contact almost uh, three or four times a week with the folk in Nepal And uh, I just want to remind you of what the situation there is at the hospital. The hospital is built on a very steep hill. The buildings themselves are um, spread out over that hill. And uh, it's staffed with about 60 people. And they are real people. And when you read about uh, things in the media... um, how people are affected, these are the people who are being affected at Anandaban. This is KP, who is the administrator for the hospital, and his wife Pradipa, 
and their daughter, whose name I can never pronounce. <coughs> Pradeepa was our interpreter when we were there. And after we left, she uh, became almost the roving reporter for the hospital, going out into the surrounding uh, regions. And a lot of what I'm going to say this morning comes from Pradeepa herself, her own experience. So, the earthquake history. Nearly uh, a month ago, just over four weeks ago, the first earthquake struck at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning when most of the Christians in Nepal would be in church and most of those who were not Christian would be outside. So the effect of the earthquake was limited across Nepal because people were outside. However, it was a major incident. I'm sure you've all heard about the terrible earthquake in Nepal and the whole country is in our prayers. I'm also sure you will be wondering how Anandaban has been affected. Anandaban was hit by the earthquake and two staff houses collapsed. And Dr. Indra's house, he was the chief surgeon, was damaged beyond repair. The women's ward was also badly damaged, but the new one that Pauline and I saw being built has been unaffected and due to open in a couple of weeks. That is the extent of the physical damage. However, at the moment, everyone is living outdoors for fear of further tremors. Many of the patients are very scared as they come from the areas most effective and have no idea whether or not their families and homes have survived. The Nepal Army is helping to bring patients with fractures and other debilitating injuries to an Andaman hospital, the only medical facility with the necessary equipment in the area, including a blood bank. The homes of 11 staff members at an Andaman hospital have collapsed. The roads around Anandaban Hospital are dangerous with landslides on the mountain tracks. We plan to send a medical team out to reach more earthquake victims. We are working with the government to get more tents and additional supplies. And this is from Pradeepa. Up to now, we are okay but not out of danger. The earthquake is coming again and again, more than 90 times since yesterday. This was the day after the first earthquake struck. Please continue to pray for us. Many wounded people coming in our hospital, and we are providing treatment and sharing the love of our Lord God. We visited a leprosarium in Kathmandu where folk who are so debilitated by leprosy cannot work at all. And the name of that place is Kokanar. And Pradeepa writes, Kokanar's old building is damaged, so the government does not allow people to live there. People who were living in that building have been moved 
and adjusted elsewhere in Kokonau. Actually, I am also visiting different earthquake-affected areas and trying to collect leprosy-affected persons who are affected by the earthquake. Again, I have to visit different earthquake-affected areas. And uh, on the 7th of May, she writes, Do you remember that cooperative in the remote area we went to visit? Most of the members' houses are collapsed. The good thing is that our members are okay physically. And again on the 7th of May, we are collecting data of the leprosy people affected by the earthquake. I hope soon we will finish to collect the data and that we start to provide support for construction. We already visited many people's houses and collected data and again we are going to collect remaining people's data this coming Sunday. We have made teams for different affected districts. As soon as possible, we're going to collect information about affected people, then they will get support. I would like to thank you so much for your prayers for helpless people. That was shortly before the second earthquake struck. And she writes, It's true, yesterday another earthquake came. It was 68 Many people died and many became injured because of that earthquake. The most affected district was Dolakha. Up to now, 57 people died in that single district. Myself, my family, and all in Andaban people are safe. We are safe up to now. The UK predicted another 8-plus earthquake in Nepal, so we are terribly afraid. Especially children are afraid so much. Yesterday, around 10 injured people came from a nearby village that are taking treatment from an Andaban. One of them, an old lady, died during treatment because she was so severely injured on her head. The Leprosy Missions and Andaban Hospital has already been dealing with more than 1,200 casualties from the previous quake, but newly injured patients have now also started to arrive. Patients at the hospital have again had to be moved outside into tents to ensure their safety due to the fear that aftershocks could cause buildings to collapse while people are inside. The staff are working unbelievably hard to ensure the injured are treated at the hospital and the relief effort to rural communities is continued. People are so scared. There is a quiet air of fear as they are forced once again to live in the open air. There is so much work to do and so many people to reach. Just one or two pictures of what is going on right now in Nepal. There's uh, <clears throat> several pictures there, but as you can see, they are out in the open. We remember that top space very well. It's where they parked all the buses, and now they've got the beds for patients there. Again, <clears throat> would you ever see that in this country, a hospital out in the open with nurses who have lost their homes uh, working uh, 24 hours a day?
even a mobile hospital, uh, an ambulance, uh, again out in the open. We want to give thanks for various things, for the physical safety of the staff and the leprosy patients, that the hospital is still fully operational, the dedication and loving care of the staff, the news that many who we met <clears throat> and you folk have supported um, and have returned home are safe, and for the safety of the remote self-help group that she's told us about, and the one state organization in Nepal that is working effectively is the help of the Nepali army and the financial response so far. I heard at the beginning of this week that the leprosy mission at Anandaban has received gifts of up to 135,000, and that will go a long way uh, to reconstruction. Please pray for no further earthquakes, for the frightened children, for peace of mind for the staff and patients, and for strength for the staff. Preparations for the monsoon season starting early June. Access to the affected areas. Safety for travel for the teams going to those remote areas. And temporary housing for the staff. Guidance for the reconstruction plans and finance for all the needs. <coughs> and just finally, I received an email from Pradeepa this morning, scheduled at 4.32, but that's our time. Sorry to delay to reply to you, but I was on the field in, most, in the most affected districts, so I could not open my email. Just today, I am, open, I am able to open my email. Nowadays also, four plus on the Richter scale aftershocks are coming every day with different places being their epicentre. Last Thursday, we were in the Darding District epicentre, was in the same place where we were staying. Life is difficult here. Very small number of people are staying inside the house. Most people are staying under a tent, spending a very difficult time. Our data collection is almost finished and after a few days we are providing relief to the many earthquake-affected people. We are ready every time to serve and listen. I would also like to thank you so much for your concern towards us. Thanks for listening. How is it that we as Christians base our lives on this book that was written 2,000 years ago, the culmination of the story of which is about a man whose life ended in total shame and disgrace, in the degradation of public crucifixion, a form of torture and execution reserved only for the lowest of the low. Only rebels and slaves were crucified, people who deserved to be treated with complete and utter contempt. When Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans, he joined the anonymous ranks of thousands 
whose lives were ended in a way that indicated that they were of absolutely no significance whatsoever. Yet here we are this morning, not only remembering Jesus, but going far further than that. We worship him as God. We invest his death with saving significance. We believe that because he died, our sin is taken away and we are reconciled to God. We believe that he rose again from the grave. He conquered death for us so that we have eternal life. We acknowledge him as Lord. We live our lives for him in the present and we look forward to the day when he will return in power and glory to judge the world and bring in the new world order that God has promised. In the cold light of day, that can all sound a little bit bizarre. To believe that kind of stuff at all might be a big ask, but to believe it of a man whose life ended on a cross, frankly, is extraordinary. Yet over the centuries, millions haven't just believed this, they've staked their entire lives upon it. How come? What on earth has convinced people, apparently against all rational evidence to the contrary, that this stuff is true? Today is Pentecost. We celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's gift of himself to the world in the Spirit. And in John 16, as Jesus talks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he talks about the Spirit as the counsellor whom he will send to us. And Jesus says that when the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will, well, what will he do precisely? It all depends what translation you're reading. Even the NIV has difficulty making up its mind over the meaning of John chapter 16, verse 8. The Pew Bible says that the Spirit will convict the world of, of guilt with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. If you've got a Pew Bible dating 1987 or later, in a footnote it suggests an alternative translation, that the Holy Spirit will expose the guilt of the world with respect to sin and righteousness and judgment. But those whizzy people of you who use the internet and get the NIV on Bible Gateway and have access to the NIV version that ends all other NIV versions will see that it says the Holy Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The original verb can carry any of these nuances in different contexts and it's hard to settle on the best way of translating it. If even the NIV can't make up its mind, spare a thought to Mary Breeze who spends her entire life wrestling with questions such as this. Yet if you want to know why it is that after 2,000 years people still believe in and worship Jesus, the answer lies precisely in what the Holy Spirit does in overturning the world's verdict on Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, the world's verdict was that he was a nobody, that he was a failure, that he was a man beneath their contempt. Nailing him to a cross was supposed to spell the end of his life forever. What the Holy Spirit does is say that the world is totally wrong in that estimation of Jesus. Whereas in the eyes of the world Jesus was tried and condemned, the Holy Spirit demands a retrial and vindicates Jesus as the Son of God and exposes the guilt of those who pass judgment on him. In effect, the Spirit says the world has got it wrong. The Spirit overturns the verdict of the world with respect to Jesus 
and proves that things are different in terms of what is right and what is wrong and what true judgment is. Jesus says, firstly, that the counsellor, the advocate, the heavenly barrister will demonstrate that the world got it completely wrong when it came to understanding the nature of sin because people did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in him because they were convinced in their own minds that that he was a sinner. But in John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus throws down the gauntlet to his opponents and demands to know whether any of those who don't believe in him can convict, there's that word again, can convict him of sin or prove him guilty of sin. If they can't do that, and he's telling the truth, why don't they believe him? Jesus confronted them with a choice. Was he right or was he wrong? Would they believe in him or not? His frustration was that they were convinced in their own minds that he was a sinner, but they couldn't prove it. They couldn't demonstrate that he'd done anything wrong. But they still did not believe him. The problem was in their minds and in their hearts. Eventually, they managed to find enough evidence to find him guilty of a crime and crucify him as a common criminal. But that act of condemning Jesus to a sinner's death placed them in the wrong and exposed their own sinfulness. It's the Holy Spirit who exposes that miscarriage of justice and declares that Jesus was in the right all along. He was not the sinful one. Those who condemned him were and their refusal to believe in him left them in their sinfulness. That is the verdict that the Holy Spirit demands. And the counsellor, the advocate, the barrister of the Holy Spirit proves that the world got it wrong about sin and got it wrong about righteousness as well. That's the flip side of the coin, if you like. The crucifixion was designed to be a public declaration that the state was in the right, because the state is always in the right. And the crucified sinner was in the wrong. After all, a crucified man is in no position to argue about the matter after he's been killed. Unless, of course, he rises again from the dead. The reality was that the state was in the wrong. And Jesus in the right. The Holy Spirit vindicates him as the righteous one. As God's chosen one. And those who rejected and condemned him were the sinful ones. And they'd been determined to do away with him, actually, because his righteousness exposed and challenged their sinfulness. In their assessment of him, their condemnation of him, that showed them up for what they really were like. Because they couldn't see his righteousness. They couldn't see his righteousness because they weren't righteous themselves. For those in power, the crucifixion of Jesus was an act of brute force designed to show that the state has the power to say what is right and what is wrong. And with Jesus out of the way, who is going to argue? Except the risen Jesus sends the Spirit into the world to overturn that verdict passed against him. So that even though people can't see him anymore, even though the righteousness of his life life is no longer visible to expose the sinfulness and the shortcomings of others, Nevertheless, the counsellor, the advocate, the Holy Spirit proves the world wrong and establishes the righteousness of Jesus as the one in whom it is correct that we put our faith, the one whom we acknowledge as Lord, the one whom we accept as our Saviour. The Spirit also demonstrates that the world has got it wrong with respect to judgment. 
In passing judgment on Jesus, the world actually passed judgment on itself, aligning itself with the prince of this world rather than with the living God. In engineering the death of Jesus, those who did so aligned themselves with the powers of darkness, and the one who is the source of that darkness stands condemned. Those who condemn Jesus stand condemned themselves in the sight of God, the ultimate judge of all, whose spirit makes the verdict absolutely clear. So whereas in the eyes of the world, the crucifixion marked the end of Jesus, condemning him and executing him as a sinful non-entity, the spirit overturns that verdict, declares Jesus to be in the right, the world to be in the wrong, and passes judgment accordingly. And the reason why 2,000 years down the line, there are still people believing with all their hearts that Jesus is Lord, is because today the Holy Spirit still convinces people in their hearts that this really is the case. The witness of God asserting that Jesus is alive. The witness of God asserting that Jesus is in the right. The witness of God asserting that those who condemned him were in the wrong. The witness of God passing God's judgment. The Spirit is the one today who is called to the bar to argue in court on Jesus' behalf and establish the truth about who he is and what he's done. It's the Spirit of God that sets the record straight. And as the Spirit witnesses to Jesus through the word of God and through the testimony of the people of God and seeks to shine the light of God in people's hearts, ultimately, we react to the testimony of the Spirit in one of two ways. We either accept it and recognise that Jesus is Lord, or we reject it. Ultimately, either we accept the witness of the Spirit and accept Jesus, or we reject the witness of the Spirit and dismiss Jesus. And sooner or later, every one of us has to make a decision about which side we're going to come down on, to decide whether we are for Jesus or against him. And it's a spirit we can't evade because it's a, it's a decision we can't evade because the spirit constantly is witnessing to Jesus, declaring him to be in the right, challenging our perception of him, refusing to allow him to be consigned to the irrelevance of history, demanding of each of us, what will you decide? How will you respond to the truth? Which side of the fence are you going to come down on? Will you accept him as Lord, as God, as Saviour? Or will you reject him? Make no mistake, if the cross of Calvary had been the end of Jesus, as those who'd crucified him had intended and purpose, I wouldn't be preaching this sermon this morning, you wouldn't be listening to it. Jesus rose from the dead the third day, having conquered death for us. Now that's a claim that's 2,000 years old. How can we possibly hope to verify it to anyone's satisfaction? But... And this is what brings Jesus out of history into the present, into your life. The risen Jesus sends his spirit into the world to be his representative, to argue his case, to testify to the truth of who he is, to expose the way in which the world got it completely wrong in its assessment of Jesus. The one the world condemned as sinful was righteous. The act of condemning the righteous one exposes the world as sinful. Those who pass judgment on Jesus that way are judged themselves. That's why all of us here and now in the 21st century still have to decide, are we for Jesus or against him? In our hearts, 
Do we leave him hanging on a cross? Or do we welcome him as Lord? And that may be a decision that you're still thinking about. And that's fine. Jesus said it's the job of the Holy Spirit to guide you in all truth. His job is to take the words of the risen Jesus and speak them into your heart and mind and convince you that they're real. But the truth of who Jesus really is is something you can only know when you know him for yourself. When you accept the witness of the Spirit and step out in faith to recognise Jesus as Lord. I've said from this pulpit before, it's a bit like looking at the stained glass windows in a cathedral from the outside and seeing only dull, lifeless, obscure, opaque panes. You step inside the building. You see the windows from the inside, with the sun shining through them, and you see their beauty and the message they are meant to convey. You can only realise the truth about Jesus, really, when you know him for yourself. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to enable us to know Jesus personally. I can point the cathedral out to you, but I can't go through the door for you. That's something only you can do for yourself. And of course, ultimately, God isn't interested in cathedrals and stained glass window. The only temple he wants to inhabit is your heart, your life. That's why Jesus told his disciples, actually, they'd be better off when he left them and rejoined the Father, because then he could send the counsellor to be with them. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he fulfills God's eternal ambition, which is to live in our hearts, be part of our lives, make us one with himself. There is nothing God wants more for any one of us and that we should allow him to make our heart his home. That's the ultimate reason why he created us. That's the ultimate reason why Jesus died. To make that possible for each and every one of us. His blood making us holy so that we can become the dwelling place of the living God. God is calling you to get down off the fence and recognise that Jesus is Lord. To accept the testimony of the Spirit, to allow him by the Spirit to make his home in your heart, for you to see how it makes perfect sense. Is God speaking to you through this sermon? Is God calling you? Is God making you rethink things? Do you know what you need to do in response in terms of recognising Jesus, accepting him as your Saviour and Lord, inviting him into your heart? If you know what you need to do, What's stopping you? If you don't know what you need to do, have a word with me, a member of the prayer team, or another Christian whom you know and trust. But allow the Spirit of Christ to guide you into all truth, to show you what is right, to show you what is wrong, to guide you in your judgment, and to recognise that Jesus' life didn't end on the cross as an entity but he is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all. He is your Saviour. He wants to make his home in your heart by the Spirit of God, if you will invite him in. Let's close in prayer. We hear so many assessments about Jesus. 
so many different voices declaring him to be this or that. Lord, would your spirit guide us into the truth? Not necessarily what we want to hear. Not necessarily what we think is right. But into what is absolutely true. Holy Spirit, this morning, show us Jesus as he is, who he really is. Guide us in our response. Where we find truth, enable us to believe it. Where we see Jesus, enable us to welcome him. Be our counsellor. Be our guide. Be our comforter. Make your home in our hearts. And make our hearts the temple of the living God. For we ask this in Jesus' name.